theyeshiva.net. It's Bechavit Rav that I introduce Harav Y.Y. Jacobson. If I say too much, I'll hear about it later. So Ozzy said it well. This is a rabbi, a Rav, a Mordiasra, a Rosh Hashiva, a brilliant speaker who has had impact worldwide and whose uniqueness we all hold is he speaks and loves every kind of Jew, and I would say every kind of person. Ladies and gentlemen, Rev. Jacobson. Thank you so much, Rabbi Katz. Thank you, Azia and Rachel. Thank you, Jonathan, for your beautiful words. Thank you, everybody, for gracing us here with your presence this evening. And I was told that there are 80,000 events tonight in Teaneck. I don't know how many other events there is in all of New Jersey. So even if one life would show up at this event, we would say Dayenu, right? As long as the check would be large enough to justify it. Even Nefesh Achas at the event would be fine. Kol we have Baruch Hashem. Ken Yirbu, a beautiful oilam here. Ladies and gentlemen, so thank you very, very much. I don't know how many of you took the six hours to watch the documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust. It's an important documentary because it highlights, sadly, one of the most shameful, shameful periods in the history of a country that has been defined as a malchus shal chesed, a country of kindness and of goodness and of uh, foundations that were based on, on biblical ethics of justice and righteousness. And yet, during the darkest years of our history, 1939 till 1945, America at large has turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to millions of our brothers and sisters who found their end in the gas chambers. It's important because history is important. Besides that, it's important because I think one of the most powerful lessons one learns from such types of stories and histories is how we must never, ever, ever remain apathetic and indifferent and passive in the presence of Jews in peril and danger. Jews just commemorated the 50th anniversary, I don't know if I used the word anniversary, but 50 years since the massacre of the Israeli athletes in Munich. 50 years ago in 1972 before Rosh Hashanah. You all know that it took 50 years for Germany to apologize for the horrible debacle and to finally come to terms with the families in terms of reparations and they didn't boycott the ceremony. It took 50 years and there was an apology this year. But if I'm not mistaken, and I heard this from a very senior figure, and he said Israel learned more than anything else from that event. You know what Israel learned from that event in 1972? Israel learned that ultimately, chesed you can't rely. You can't put your souls into the hands of other people, even when you have a country that has a lot of kind people in it. It was a different Germany afterwards, after the Holocaust. But you can't trust 
you can't trust the lives of your children in the hands of people who don't see them as their own children. They see them as Jewish children. It changed something in the minds of many leaders in Israel. For me, it's most captured by two stories in Bereshus, two brothers, two sets of brothers. Cain murders his brother Hevel, the first brothers who ever lived. He murders his brother. It actually happened, according to some, on Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> and what happens is, Hashem asks Cain, where is Hevel? Hey, Hevel Achicha. What does Cain say? Hashemer Achi Anoichi. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, I don't have enough tsaris. I got my own tuition bills to pay God. Okay, he was in the garden. Nobody was getting an education. But uh, mortgage, I wanted to say a mortgage. I have my own sorrows. I have my own anxiety. That's always the even in the Garden of Eden. I got my own anxiety. I have to deal with my brother. What do I have to do with my brother? I have my own problems. Let my brother take care of himself. He's a young, fine, skilled fellow. And just a few portions later, you have another brother. His name is Yosef. His brothers didn't like him. And he goes to meet them and to see their welfare. And he gets lost. And a man meets him and says, What are you searching for? And Yosef says four words. I'm searching for my brothers. Wow. You read that verse and you say, humanity has evolved. The first two sets of brothers, am I my brother's keeper? What do I have with my brother? We were born from the same mother, but I'm not responsible for my brother. Yosef says, I'm searching for my brothers. And ultimately, he's the one who saves his brothers, despite them trying very hard to get rid of him. On Rosh Hashanah, we go to Tashlich, and it says in Kabbalah, one of the reasons is we want to hang out with the fish. Why the fish? Why the fish? That's, by the way, the source of sushi at every bar mitzvah and wedding and fundraising event, to the point that there's Rabbanim Paskin that if there was no sushi at the wedding, you may have to redo the Kiddushan. Because it doesn't have the definition of a Jewish wedding, it has a definition of a Japanese wedding, because there was no sushi. Why do we want so, why do we want to be infatuated by the fish? <laughs> I once heard from the great Kabbalist, you remember him, Jackie Mason. He brought a lot of simcha to a lot of Jews, you have to say that, right? I know Trey Batchi, the Gemara says about the guys who brought simcha, Bnei Elam Haba. So he says, who came up with sushi? He was as it was a Jew. He opened the restaurant and he was too cheap to put in the kitchen. So he decided we'll serve raw fish. So in any case, we go to the fish. So it says in Surah, Darizal says, fish have eina pekicha. Fish never close their eyes. They always have open eyes. We and most mammals, when they sleep, they close their eyes. And other times you also close your eyes. Fish don't know how to close their eyes. Why is that such a geval de kazakh? And one of the reasons is, at the head of the year, the beginning of the year, we want to hang around those living organisms who teach us not to close our eyes. It's very easy for me to sit in my home and close my eyes. I choose what to see, what not to see. I was once in Palm Beach for a Shabbaton. So Friday night we were having a dinner in the rabbi's house and he introduces me to a couple that was celebrating... Their 70th wedding anniversary. I was like, wow, you know, it's longer than Queen Elizabeth. No, it's not. Is it? Close. 
I'm like, 70 years and you're on speaking terms. He says, absolutely. So I asked him, what was the secret? 70 years. He looks at me and he says, the secret? I was half blind and half deaf. I turned to his wife. I said, that's his perspective. Now let me hear from your perspective. She says, I was completely blind and completely deaf. Then I know, ah, now I understand. It's easy for me to shut my eyes. We choose what to see, what not to see, what clips to open, what not clips, clips not to open. On Rosh Hashanah, you learn to have the courage to keep your eyes open. It's not easy to keep your eyes open. It can create a lot of uh, challenges because you get to see a lot of things. But then you have to have deeper courage and say, If I'm my brother's keeper, my wife told me the other night, she says, when you have children away from the house, you never shut the phone. <laughs> not Shabbos, not Yom Tif. That's the cloud. Sometimes that's the, you have children away from the house. I wanted to shut the phone before Shabbos. She said, you have children away from the house, out of town, the, house, the phone has to stay open. The point is, Rosh Hashanah, you learn to keep your eyes open. And I think, I want to say one thing about our hosts. There's Jews who say, I have my own sorrows, I have my own problems. The only people I know who have perfect lives are the people I don't know well. The only people I know who have perfect marriages are the marriages I don't know well. And that includes even Bergenfield and Teaneck, New Jersey. However, however, there are those whose philosophy is, I'm not my brother's keeper. Not because I don't want to, because I have enough. I have enough stress. But the Mandels follow Yosef's words. If there's something I can do for my sister, for my brother, hineni. If you're not living in a cave, you know that many of the institutions of flourishing Yiddishkeit here in this area, they always ask, what can we do to help? Seven years, just one life, this is the natural place. So first of all, I want to bless you that you should always be able to have an open home and an open heart to all of our brothers and sisters and make uh, be a place that's filled with simcha and bracha and atzlacha and health and happiness and prosperity and nachas. And the most important thing, it should be filled with atzlacha ad blidai, divine success and blessing on all levels. And essentially... Just one life is that. It's easy to say, okay, a woman is struggling in Israel with a pregnancy. What am I supposed to do? It's not my daughter. It's not my sister-in-law. It's not my niece. It's not my granddaughter. But 32 years ago, 32 is Begamatria Lave. 32 years ago, Rabbi Josh, Rabbi Katz got together and uh, said, we can't say Hashem or Achi Anoichi. We have to say it's Achei Anoichi Mevakesh. And Nefesh Achaz Israel, just one life, was created. I don't know how many of you remember Amadeus. Remember Amadeus? So Emperor Joseph II comes to a, uh, a concerto by Mozart. Now, the emperor was tone deaf. He had no sensitivity to music. So what do these people do at uh, Mozart concertos? They do what Jews do at sermons. It's called shlof. They fall asleep. So the emperor fell asleep. When he finished, Mozart walked by and the emperor said, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, 
job well done, but too many notes, right? It's like people tell me, Rabbi, why, why, beautiful speech, but too long, too long. There was once a rabbi, he was going on and on and on. It was the middle of the week, and the president got up and walked out. It was horribly embarrassing. So he says, Mr. President, Schwartz, where are you going? He said, I'm going to get a haircut. So a haircut? Why couldn't you get a haircut before the speech? He said, then I didn't need it. <laughs> so he tells, he tells Mozart, you did a great job, but too many notes. What do you tell the emperor? Bistan Amaretz? What do you say? Bistan Idiot? He didn't want to go out with a head shorter. What should he tell me? You were sleeping the whole time. You know about music like I know about cats in New Zealand, kangaroos in New Zealand. What is he supposed to tell the emperor? Mozart was a smart man. He tells the emperor, yes, 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 your majesty. Just tell me, which, one, which notes do you suppose I cut? I reminded myself of this line by Mozart when I saw a clip just yesterday of a woman named Yael Mizrahi living in Jerusalem. Rings a bell? Re'el Mizrahi. You know what I'm talking about? Very good. You're not the only one who sends clips in this world. You know that. Unfortunately, Ya'el tells a story. 24 years ago, she was carrying quadruplets in Yerushalayim. She went to the doctor. You can understand if Rivka was struggling with her pregnancy, Yael was certainly struggling with her pregnancy. So she went to the doctor. And the doctor said, let's get rid of two, and you'll give birth to twins. So the mother looks at the doctor and says, which two do you suppose I get rid of? And she called Just One Life. Just One Life brought in their doctors who checked out the situation. They said, there's no reason not to go along with this birth. There's no danger to the mother, Alpiteva. How can you do this? Why should you do it? A few months later, Yael gave birth to four beautiful children. Four beautiful children. Three years ago, Number one got married, and a year later he had a baby. Rabbi Katz was at the wedding. Two years ago, number two got married, and a year later had a baby. <laughs> and this year, number three got married, still waiting for the baby, it takes a couple of months, even with just one life. Be'ezer Hashem, the fourth one will get married, and everybody who needs a shidduch in New Jersey and beyond. And I thought to myself, you know, which one do you suppose I cut, a mother says? Which one? (laughs) Hasidic mother, she has a lot of kids. I'm not going to tell you how much. But she does family planning Hasidic style. Let's have another one. (laughs) So, uh, So she was at some event. She tells me, and somebody says to her, how many children do you have? 14? And she says, I have one of each. <laughs> I only have one of each. I only have one Chaim. I only have one David. I only have one Dvaira. I only have one Sarah. I don't have 14 Sarahs. I have one Sarah. The other woman was stunned. It's how Judaism views, views reality, views people, views souls. I can't help but thinking about the fact 
that the event that was watched by the most people ever, I believe, is the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Four and a half billion people. I'm from the few losers who didn't watch the funeral. Is there anybody else who didn't watch the funeral? Oh, please. So we're the Meshuggahim, so why are we getting together? Okay. Four and a half billion people. Okay. Wow. Wow. Amazing. There's seven billion people in the world. That's the majority of humanity. The fact she came in with uh, pomp too, because when she was coronated in 1953, it was the first coronation of history that was televised internationally. And then not many people had a TV unless you were a Russian. The Russians gave a TV to everybody. No bread, but a TV for propaganda. Stalin and Khrushchev for their propaganda. And you know that in Russia you didn't have bread, but everybody had a TV. Everybody had a TV. But in America in 53, you know, we were getting there. But still millions watched it. And to yesterday, Monday, not two days ago, four and a half billion people. In, in, in England itself, 37 million people. And I was asking myself, why? What's the reason for this? What is it? It's not like the Queen of England wrote a book or music that defined a generation. It's not like she had real control over the destiny of history or the destiny of the United Kingdom. Take Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev arguably changed history. He ended the Cold War. His death three weeks ago was reported. But you can't compare the attention that Gorbachev got to the attention that Her Majesty, the Queen, the British monarch got. And I was wondering, you know, what is it? You know, people waited 24 hours, 24 hours to pass the coffin and pay last respects. I couldn't wait three minutes on a line, Nechver Meshiga. 24 hours, and you know, the British, they're gentlemen, they know how to behave online. It's not like where I come from in New York. You know, they're bringing Kool-Aid and selling sushi and shachris, minchet, afyoyim. You know how Jews on airplanes. You know what's happening. We can't stand still for a moment. There was, you remember Tower Air? You remember the airline Tower Air? All of Ashalom? You remember? It was a Corbin. So New Year's, it was... <laughs> you regretted the trips you took. So that's why they went out of business, I guess. They pay tribute to the passengers who, who vowed never again. So it was Hanukkah time, New Year's time. You know, Hanukkah, December. So uh, they came to Tel Aviv. The captain gets up on the mic and he says, to all those who are sitting, I want to wish you a happy New Year. To all those who are standing, happy Hanukkah. The other day there was an El Al flight going out from Newark to, uh, to Tel Aviv. And there was this fellow who wanted to sleep for 11 hours. But he knew on El Al flight there's no hope. So he put up a sign near his chair. He had it typed up earlier. A sign, and this is what he wrote. I have no Siddur. I have no Chumash. I daven Mincha already. I daven Mairev. I do not want to daven Shachras. I don't have Kichlach. I don't have Herring. I don't have diapers. I don't have a pacifier. I don't have baby wipes. I don't have napkins. I don't have a Siddur. I don't have a Tillim. I don't have a Chumash. I don't have an art scroll Daf Yoimi. I don't have a Tfilis Haderech. I don't have the Baba Sali's Zgulois for a turbulent flight. He thought he's guaranteed peace for 11 hours as though he was a Gentile from Kentucky. 
Five minutes into his sleep, somebody is shoving him. Azai. You know how they wake you up? They don't just wake you up. It's in your ribs usually. Somebody's like, Azai, and Azai. A very elegant way. So this guy is shoving him. He opens his eyes. Read the sign. Person said, I read this sign. Read it again. I read it. Read it a third time. I read it. I'm asking you for something else. He says, what? It's a docker for the vision. It's a It's you gotta, you gotta love our brothers and sisters. You gotta love them. So, 24 hours online. I was wondering, wow, I have a lot of British friends. Some of them are experiencing deep grief, I have to say. Deep emotional. Now, it's easy to dismiss and say, it's a soap opera. And the media loves the pump and the drama and the scandals and the royal family and all the mices that go on over there and the broken families and the tabloids in England, and the jewelry, you know, the clothes, and every wedding. It's a very good source of entertainment. Maybe. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, that there's something a little deeper here. Maybe I'm erring, but this is just my uh, my perception. The Maharal writes, the Maharal of Prague has a sefer called Tiferes Yisrael, the beauty of Israel, the splendor of Israel. It's a beautiful book, pun intended. And he says there in chapter 3, he makes a very profound observation. He says, people crave royalty. Not because of their vanity. Not because people are spoiled and narcissistic. He says, because the soul is royal. Nefesh ha'adam hi min hel yoinim. V'lechein hi mishtekekes tamid. Liois etzem eleiki lamaila. The soul is made out of celestial stuff. It yearns for grandeur, genuine grandeur, divine grandeur. It's never satisfied just with survival. It looks for royalty because it's regal, it's noble. It searches for divine nobility, for real meaning, for real purpose, for real transcendence, and it will never be satisfied without it being true to its innate intrinsic nature. And what he's describing here is a different type of malchus. There is an innate, I would say, what Maral is saying is that the innate state of a human being is nobility, royalty. We don't want to be confined to an emotional prison. We don't like being petty. I think Da Vinci once said, once you went into the air and you flew, you never are satisfied just being on the earth. You always look up again. They once asked Michelangelo how he would sculpture out his incredible statues. And he said, I see the angel trapped in the marble and I carve and carve and carve and set the angel free. The Gemara says in Brachas Dafnun Ches, Malchusa da Arak ein Malchusa de Rakia. Nobility down here, as remote as it is, still mirrors something of heavenly regality. And I think, even though we don't like admitting that the crown does anything for us, and we're not British, we're Americans, and the whole United States of America was created in defiance of the British monarchy, and it's unconstitutional to confer titles of regality on anybody in the United States of America. You ever read the title on Queen Elizabeth II? It's longer than Chassim Beratius. It's longer than the rabbi's sermon. Much better than Mr. President... Mr. Senator, they know how to do it, the English. They know how to do it. True. 
but regality still captures our imagination. It stirs, it stirs something in us. One of us, a beautiful story I'll share with you. It's about the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, who was the founder of Chabad, and the author of Shulchan Aruch Harav. And he was an incredible spiritual giant. He died in 1812. He lived in Russia, Belarus, under Tsar Paul I. I don't know how many of you know Russian history, but Paul I was the Tsar. He was assassinated in 1801. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman, the Tanya, Balatanya, was arrested in 1798 on charges of treason. They were heinous charges that he's trying to overthrow the Tsar and become the new Tsar of Russia. Interesting accusation against the Hasidic Rebbe of the stature of the Balatanya. He wants to become the next Tsar of Russia. He almost received capital punishment. He was sent to Petersburg. He was incarcerated. They sent a psychiatrist and a psychologist the way it was in 1798 before Schleimel of Freud. He called himself Zygmunt, but his real name was Schleimel, and here we talk real stuff. He didn't like it, but today he likes it. Before Freud's days, they had what they, they their own doctors. They sent a psychiatrist and a psychologist to the Balatanya in prison to interview him and scrutinize him and survey him and see what's going on. And the psychiatrist and psychologist did his work, and he came back, and he said that this man is suffering from an insatiable desire. The prosecution devoured the statement. You see? He wants to become the Tsar of Russia. <laughs> a Hasidic Rebbe, he can't become the Tsar of Russia. He's not from the Romanov family and he's not Catherine's grandson. So he's dealing with a desire that he can't fulfill. This was fodder for the prosecution. So they came to the Balatanya and they said, this is what the man says about you. What is this craving? No, you would think he would say, you guys are nuts, you guys are sugar, right? You guys are completely crazy. He said, es gedacht. He's right, I guess in Russian. He's right. I do crave Malchus. I do crave the throne. But I don't crave the throne of Paul I. I crave to be a conduit for Malchus the Ein Soif. I crave to be a channel for the royalty of the Rebbeinah Shalaylam. I crave to be a tzinoy, a manifestation of Hashem's regality in this world. That's true. It's something I really, really yearn for. Nafshi We say you did nefesh. Your friendship, your intimacy is more sweet to me than the sweetest of, of honeycombs. Malchus, there's something about regality, about nobility. There was, a, there was a woman who was traveling from Lakewood towards my neck of the woods, towards Muncie. She was on the Garden State Parkway. Her name is Malka Khanna. She's a geld sailor from the house. Her father was a son-in-law of Rav Mechel Tversky in Milwaukee. And she stopped for gas. She went into a gas station. I think exit 127, if I'm not mistaken, she shared the story. And she went to the gas station, and the fellow came over, and he put the gas uh, into her tank to fill up the gas. And then he went to clean, you know, the windows, as is the minig in the good gas stations. 
as he's cleaning the window, he sees a picture hanging on her windshield in the car, and he's staring at it. And she got a little queasy, you know. What? <laughs> so she opened the window, and she sees that the man is three feet tall. It's a very, very small man in height. And she says, what are you looking at? He says, who's the guy in the picture? She says, why? He says, he always used to come here, and he would talk to me. And he's been gone for two years. And he disappeared. Where is he? This is the guy. So she says, he's my father. He's my father. He gets very emotional. He says, I want you to know something. Every day, thousands of cars come in. They get their gas, and they move on. And most people, when they see me, they divert their eyes. Because it's not comfortable to look at me. I'm a midget. The first time your father came to this gas station, he saw me. He went out of the car. He looked me straight in the eyes. And he said these words. You are my inspiration. You have every excuse in the book to stay home and play victim. For good reason. And yet... You come out of bed, you come and you work and you live a productive and meaningful and fulfilled life. You are a source of empowerment for me. And the man looks at uh, Malka, Malka Chana Goldsailor and says, every time he came back, he would come out of the car and chat with me. Now she started to cry and she said, my father was involved in a bus accident two years ago and he passed away. That's why he didn't come for two years. They're both crying. And he turns to her and says, I want you to know something. That day your father came to this gas station was the first time in my life that I felt I was tall. And then I understood the words of the Mara or the words of the Balatanya. There's a nobility. That's why so many of us are in therapy. Why are we in therapy? We don't have anything better to do with our money. Because people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. That was brilliant, no? <laughs> I just got it. We don't want to live, like Thoreau said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. We don't want to live lives of quiet desperation. We don't want to be petty. We don't want to be small. We feel that we're larger. There's something in every soul that's larger than life. The Tanya says that a soul is a chelike lekami mal mamish. It's a derivative of the consciousness of infinity. Every person is betzelem elekim, is in the visage of God. What, what does royalty look like? I heard this from the woman herself. I have to say this. This is not a story from Klei Chamishi, Klei Shishi. And I'm not judging this way or that way. I'm just telling you something that made me feel very, it moved me very deeply. I was speaking to a woman. She was married to a fellow. He worked for his father in a very, very successful multi-million dollar business. The business did very well. Unfortunately, the son and the father got into a major quarrel, which happens, Loyaleinu, it happens not so infrequently. And the father told his son, it's time for you to leave, there's no place in this business for you. He left, and then he brought a lawsuit against his father, the company owes him $80 million. $80 million. She told me my father-in-law was a tough man. (laughs) 
unbending, harsh, stubborn. He said, you want to go? You want to fight? We'll fight. And the court case was schlepping for years, years and years and years, and her husband did not have a day of serenity. One day he died. It was unexpected. And he left his wife with five little orphans. People came to visit her and comfort her. And most people told her, you know, you got to continue the case. Hopefully, Bezir Hashem, you'll come out with $80 million, a nice, respectable sum of money to feed your five orphans and give them a life of dignity. She tells me, Rabbi Waira, but I knew, knowing my father-in-law, I'm going to be in court for 15 years. And I had to make a decision. Am I going to be in court? Or am I going to be a mother for children who need the attachment of a mother more than anything else? I called up my father-in-law. And I said, unfortunately, your son passed away. As you know, my husband passed away. I am withdrawing the lawsuit. There's no court case anymore. The money is yours. Enjoy your $80 million. Bye-bye. I looked at this woman and I said in Yiddish, Du bist m'shige? Du bist m'shige? Which in English means, you're crazy? You're crazy? Hire somebody, delegate. You give up. Du bist in ganze m'shige? You're crazy. Why'd you do it? I'll never forget her words. She looked at me and she said, Rabbi, why, why? What do I look like? A shmata? I'm not a shmata. For me, my mental health, my happiness, my children's serenity and happiness are worth more than $80 million. My life of dignity is worth more than $80 million. I would not let myself be such a shmata. The court case was canceled. There was no lawsuit. I should say, he did pay for the tuition of the five kids and for their weddings. That's what I call royalty. We so often live in a world that makes us feel short, small, petty, valueless, insignificant, even if I'm successful. And there's always the voice saying, who do you think you are? It's one of my favorite stories, and it's a real story. Queen Elizabeth II was going with, to a performance with her mother, the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother. By the way, you're looking for a Queen Mother. Most Jewish mothers who have teenage girls today, I call them the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother also has a bad day. You know, even in the British royal family, you can have a bad day. Right? Not just in New Jersey. People have bad days. She was very irritable. And on the journey, she snapped at her daughter, Elizabeth II. And what does she say, the Queen Mother? Who do you think you are? In perfect British accent. Her daughter was a regal woman. She says, Mommy! Who do I think I am? I am the queen, mommy. The queen, mommy. I love it. We all have voices in our head. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who? 
Abehemer, I fed I shed it on idiot, especially if you went to certain yeshivas. And you got the real TLC of the great pedagogues who knew how to empower and build your self-confidence and tell you what a shmendrik you are. In English, there's one word for a loser. It's called loser. Do you know how many words for a loser there are in Yiddish? I counted 200. I'm not going to keep you here for an hour, but I counted 200. An idiot, a fed, a shoite, a chochem, a chochem, a chochem for the manishtana, a tipish, a sheretz, a behem, a shlemazel, a lo yutzlachnik, a batlin, a schnorer, a schlepper, fahakt, fahwundet, fahschlept, zerschlept, zertrogen, zerbluzet, and many more. The voice often rages in us. You know, the mental chatter. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to have an incredible marriage? Who do you think you are to have an amazing relationship with your children? Who do you think you are to have a powerful relationship with your grandchildren? Who do you think you are to be truly successful, powerful, Gorgeous, inside, outside. Who do you think you are to have an impact on the world, a positive impact? Who do you think you are to have an impact on the Jewish world? Who? Just surrender and resign and live in your closet and don't make ripple effects and waves. And you know what you have to answer at that moment? Who do I think I am? The queen, mommy. The queen, the Gemara says in Shabbos, call Tzamech Zayin, call Yisrael, B'nai Melachim hey. And that's in Mishnah. In Zoya it says, call Yisrael Melachim. Not just a prince or a princess. A king or a queen. What do you mean, who do I think I am? The queen, mommy. And the greatest thing you can do for people is help them feel tall, splendid, sacred. I have a friend who went to visit the Tower of London. He wanted to see the crown jewels. You know how many gemstones there are in the crown jewels? Gemstones. More than 32,000. Of course, the centerpiece is the imperial state crown that was lying on the coffin of Her Majesty for the last two weeks. So this was a yeshiva boy, a friend of mine. He went with a few boys, and there was a British tour guide... Showing them around, especially showing the, what's called the coronation regalia, the garments that are used by the monarchs when they're coronated. Queen Elizabeth had it in 1953. Charles III will have it in a few months when he's coronated. So what's a classic question of a New York yeshiva boy when he's looking at the imperial state crown in the Tower of London? How much is it worth? You know, he's 20 years old, right? What's, you know, right? That's a, what else is important? Maybe we can make a deal. eBay. Shmebay. It's an opportunity. That's the last thing that British tour guide had to hear. He told me she almost had a heart attack. It was like the, the epitome of apicursus, of heresy. She's like, how much are they worth? Sir, these are the crown jewels. They're priceless. So you ask the next question. What about insurance? 
You have health insurance. You have life insurance. You have car insurance. You have house insurance. Today you have already happiness insurance, psychology insurance, serenity insurance, anxiety insurance, stress insurance. There are chazanim who have voice insurance. There was a big chazan. He told his friend, I bought myself voice insurance. He said, so how much money did you get already? It was a great compliment. You didn't get that. In the back you have to wake up. You have to wake up over there. There was a chazan in New Jersey. You know the Maisa? It's a big chazan in New Jersey. A big shoulder, Shoshana. He finishes davening, Mosef. The president comes over to him and said, you were so horrible. We will never hire you again. He comes home. He's depressed. He's not making kiddush. His wife says, what happened? He says, I'm fasting. She says, oh, you're not fasting. You've been eating for 40 years nonstop. Why are you not eating? He says, the truth. The president said, he's never hiring me again. I was horrible. You know, a woman always knows how to build the confidence of her husband, right? She knows the right, a woman knows what to say. So she says, that president, he knows about chazanas. He just repeats what the whole shul says. <laughs> so this boy wanted to know, how much, how do you insure, how much is insurance for these crown jewels? This point, she was ready to have cardiac arrest. She looks at this man. And she says, are you a fool? There's no insurance for these crown jewels because they're priceless. They're val- they have no price, so you can't insure them. But there's a very profound statement in life here. Some things you cannot buy insurance for. Not because they're cheap, because you can't put a value on their head. You can't put a price on them. There's no insurance. Then I understood the Gemara says in Shabbos Dafyud, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Matone toive yeshli I have a treasure, I have a crown jewel in my treasury. It's called Shabbos. Tell the Jews. Wait, what? What does he have to give this flattery introduction? Say, I have a gift, it's called Shabbos. No, I have it in my treasury, it's an oitzer. Then I understood. One of my boys, he was a little kid today, he's an Alta de Bachiro. He was around seven or eight years old, a sharp kid. He says, Tati, out of the blue, was Shabbos. He says, Tati, if somebody offered you, these were his words, $10 million to sign a paper on Shabbos, would you take it? Came from a seven-year-old. I'm like, ooh, he's going to be an interesting boy, I'm thinking. So I said, no, I wouldn't. He said, Tati, I don't believe you. If nobody is looking, if nobody is looking, you would sign, right? I said, I wouldn't. He says, I don't believe you. Why not? Why not? You'll keep next Shabbos. So I thought for a moment, and I said to him, his name is Mendel. I said, Mendel, I want to ask you a question. If somebody came to me and offered me $25 billion so that he should be able to take you and raise you, but I can't see you anymore. He'll take care of you. You'll have a nice life. But me and mommy can't see you anymore. Here's $25 billion. Do you think Tati would do it? He said, no. I'm like, oh, Baruch Hashem, at least that. I'm not a child abuser. (laughs) I don't have to call child services on myself. Then I said, Mendel, do you think Tati would have to debate it in his mind before he made a decision? He says, probably not. I'm like, thank you for the probably. I said, why? Why not? $25 billion. He looks at me and he says, 
because some things are priceless. I said, good gesagt, Mendel. Shabbos is priceless. How much are you going to pay for Shabbos? You could sleep a whole Sunday. You're not getting back Shabbos. Hashem said, it's a crown jewel. It's not a means for an end. You'll get Shabbos, you'll have a nap, you'll read a book, you'll finish a book, you'll have cholent, you'll have ice cream at night, you'll have pizza, you'll go bowling. You'll relax. That's all nice stuff. It's a crown jewel. Oitzer, yeshli bebeis gnozai. Some things don't have a price. You may have remember after 9-11, they were interviewing a firefighter who saved around 40 people from one of the towers. He kept on going in and out. And he, say, he brought them to safety. So somebody asked him, a journalist, I guess, who wasn't so wise, says, what type of reward would you like for your heroic actions? And this firefighter looked at him and said, a reward? I saved 40 lives. I brought 40 people back to their families, to their children, to their spouses, to their parents. I gave them their lives. Yeah, reward, no reward. It's incredible. Rabbi Katz tells me yesterday, tell the people that for $1,800, they could sponsor a birth in crisis. $1,800. So he told me to say it, so I'm telling it to you. Because The Gemara says, whatever the Balabayas tells you, you stew, unless he tells you, get out of here. Which he may say in a few minutes. Okay, I won't. Fine. But the truth is, $1,800 is the symbolic amount that goes into the bank. But what's the price of bringing a child to the world? What's the price? What's the price? How much? How much is my child's life worth? (laughs) And let me ask you another question. How much is a good marriage worth? (laughs) How much is love worth? How much is it worth hugging your child? What's the value of a mitzvah? What's the value of Torah? What a, the answer is, these are the crown jewels of reality. The Torah says in Yisra Hashem tells the Jewish people, V'yisim li, segula. So what does Rashi say? What's segula? You know what Rashi says? I never understood the Rashi till this week. I have to thank the Queen of England for explaining to me the Rashi. Truth. Rashi says, the kings have a custom, you can look it up, the kings have a custom, that they have jewels and gems and pearls and diamonds and they put them away in Gniza. They put them away in hiding. That's called a zgula. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand. I understand you have a jewel to show off. You got to get your girls into the right seminaries. You got to get your kids into the right yeshivas. You got to get the right shatchanim on your side. So you got to display certain things. I got it. I understand you have jewels to do business. I understand you have jewels to squander. But what's the point of hiding it? Nobody even sees it. You're not selling it. You're not using it. And the answer is, it's a foolish question. These jewels are not for something else. They're not a means for an end. These are the crown jewels. It's having it. I never understood the Rashi. Till this week, I understood. There's no insurance. This is monarchy. It's not a means for an end. Spiritually, this is what greatness of a human being means. You're not a means for an end. We often think we are a means for an end. A person is not a means for an end. 
A mitzvah is not a means for an end. It's a crown jewel. It's a zgula. It's a different type of reality. That's the price of a life. It has no price. That's the value of a soul. No value can be conferred on it. How much is God worth? Anybody knows? How much do you think God is worth? How much can you bribe him for? It's a foolish question, right? But if a person is a chelik elikami mal, it's beyond worth. The German, you know, me always learn from your enemies what to do. The Germans killed close to two million Jews in Ukraine through bullets. And then they said the bullet is too expensive. It's too much. It's wasting too much money on the Jew. How much did it cost to kill a Jew with a bullet? It cost around a penny. But a penny is too much to spend on a Jew. Hence, gas chambers. We won't have to spend so much. Even the death of a Jew is not worth a penny. That was the Nazis' philosophy. So now we have to know what our philosophy is. What's the price for a Jewish soul? A penny? A nickel? $1,800? $18 million? I say to you, it's a crown jewel. There's no price. It's priceless. It's valueless. We live in a world of money. So Rabbi Marty Katz says 1800 bucks for a birth. But you're dealing with a reality that is essentially something that transcends that price. My dearest, dearest friends, my dearest friends, since the whole world is talking about the queen, I'll also talk about the queen. She had a bodyguard for 14 years. They call it a protection officer in Britain. We call it a lady gay. Over there, it's a protection officer. Don't quote me. And he was her bodyguard for 40 years. His name is Jack. His name is Richard Griffin. They call him Dick, Dick Griffin. So they interviewed Dick Griffin about his 14 years with the Queen. So he shared the following experience. The royal family has a castle, Balmoral, in Scotland, and the queen would go there for weekends. It's a very quiet place. And she would go out for a picnic with him, and they would take walks and chat with him. Usually there was no soul to be found, but once they were taking a stroll, and they saw two hikers that were walking or jogging towards them, and the queen would always greet everybody cordially and respectfully. And these two Americans were coming towards them, and they approached them. And Dick Griffin says, I saw immediately that they did not recognize that this was the British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. She was wearing a kerchief on her head, and they simply didn't identify her. And she said, hi, how are you? And they said, hi. And she asked them where they're from, and they said, they're from the United States. What are you doing here? And they shared their vi- about their visit to Britain and Scotland, where they were yesterday, where they were going tomorrow, what they're doing today. And then they turned to her, and they said, and where are you from? And she said, I am from London. So they said, what are you doing here? And she says, I have a home here. They said, wow, how long have you been coming to this home? She says, from when I was a little girl. I've been coming here for 80 years. 
And Dick Griffin says, I could see the wheels in their brain turning. And they look at her and they say, you've been coming here for 80 years. Wow. You must have at some point met the queen of England because we know that she lives around this area. And without skipping a hard speech, she says, actually, I never met the queen. But this fellow, Dick, he meets her regularly. They're like, really? You meet the queen? He says, yes, regularly. They say, they say to him, tell us about her personality. And he says, I knew that the queen had a very good sense of humor and yet could pull her legs. I said, well, she can be very cantorcurious, which means very argumentative and uncooperative and, and bad-tempered and harsh. But she has a lovely sense of humor. They say, wow, that's amazing. So you meet the queen. We want a picture with you. And before he knows it, they give the camera to the British monarch and they say, would you please take a photograph of us with this fellow who meets the queen regularly? And now the queen of England became a photographer. And she was taking and snapping photos of these American hikers with her bodyguard. And when she finished, they say, you know what, let's take a picture with you too. And Dick took a picture of them with the queen, and she bid them farewell, and they each went on their way. She turns to her protection officer, Mr. Griffin, and says, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. When they show those pictures to their American friends, and hopefully somebody will tell them who I am. (laughs) I love this story, and I'll tell you why. The Baal Shem Tov says everything is a lesson in life. Everything you see in here is a lesson in Avodah Hashem. We often think that to talk to the King of Kings and to get to know the King of Kings, we have to have a shliach. We have somebody we could find. And he's going to be the one who tells us about the Queen of England. And I don't realize that right now I'm in the presence of royalty. Hashem Right now, you can talk to him. You can share everything with him. You can open your heart to him. He'll even take pictures for you if you want, from you with his bodyguards. I often fail to realize that I'm in the presence of royalty and I could communicate with royalty. But sometimes it may even be deeper than that. I sometimes fail to realize that I am royalty, that I'm in the presence of myself, that I am royalty. I just see myself as a spiritual midget. I see myself as small and petty and insignificant. But it doesn't take away from the fact that you're Malchus, you're in the presence of Malchus. And tonight we were given the gift and the opportunity to be able to connect our money and our passion and our heart with the crown jewels of the Reboi Neshalolim in the world. Neshama Sisral the souls of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land, each soul a priceless crown jewel, each soul a zgula, each life an eternal gift to the world, to history, to the Jewish people, and to Hashem Himself. Thank you. Thank you very much. A good gebenshter. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.